Welcome to Incorrect Music Theories, a show that looks at music through the lens of the absurd, the literal, and the just plain weird. I'm your host, Tim Boffman Jr. Through this point in the show's run, I've done my best to avoid diving into the realm of comedic music. This show is intended to be something resembling a comedy podcast. I don't need anyone overshadowing my scripts by being actually, you know, good at being funny. That said, I also recognize that completely avoiding a specific genre of music in these scripts is not a particularly sustainable business model, especially when I already won't write scripts about country music, bluegrass, music in languages I don't speak, music in languages I do speak but that think steel guitar deserves solos, and of course, anything written by John Philip Sousa. Granted, almost all of these are negotiable, except for Sousa. Fuck that guy. Since I'm willing to discuss a comedy song in one of these scripts, you might think I'd start with Weird Al Yankovic. Though Weird Al is one of my earliest musical influences, and is definitively the reason I think comedy and music can be combined, I have something special planned for the first Weird Al song we'll cover. That script is going to take a long time to research and write, so you'll get that at some point in the future. As a consolation prize, Let's take a look at a song by another of my favorite comedic musical creators, The Lonely Island. 2009's Incredibad features a wealth of well-known songs from The Lonely Island to analyze. I'm on a boat, like a boss, dick in a box, lazy Sunday, and jizz in my pants all receive digital shorts from Saturday Night Live, propelling them into national consciousness. The album features collaborations with massive musical stars such as Justin Timberlake, T-Pain, and Nora Jones, as well as entertainment industry heavyweights like Jack Black, Natalie Portman, and Chris Parnell. Hell, I even considered finding a way to look at Space Olympics, which is, in fact, track 17 on Incredibad and not a division of the Space Force Institute in the previous presidential administration. Instead, we're going to look at the song Boombox. This song features Julian Casablancas, who I was 100% sure was the guy who invented the concept of the supermodel before I started researching this script. Turns out I was confusing him with John Casablancas, who is actually Julian's dad. That was weird. Julian Casablancas is in fact the lead singer of The Strokes, a fact which is going to cause at least one listener in my audience to immediately end listening to this episode. As much as I'm now tempted to do a bait-and-switch and start analyzing Reptilia, I think Boombox is the far more interesting song. The final line of Boombox reads as follows, quote, a boombox is not a toy, end quote. The reason this has to be clarified is due to the power of the eponymous Boombox shows throughout the course of the song. At various points in the song, Boombox is stated to compel people to dance, wash hate away, and instigate an orgy at a nursing home. This seems to be like a fairly powerful piece of equipment. You can make the argument that boomboxes are meant to make people dance, but the power that this specific boombox displays seems to extend far beyond a typical music playing device, and even beyond that of music itself. In today's episode, we're going to figure out if a boombox is not a toy, what is it exactly? Throughout the song, the titular boombox is deployed a total of four times one each in a country club, a boardroom, New York City, and in a nursing home. I'm going to begin by looking at the first three locations in question, 
as the effects of the boombox in all these locations were relatively similar in nature. At the country club and the boardroom, Andy Samberg holds his boombox high in the air and begins to play music. In both cases, the clientele of these locations, people described as stuffy, unwilling to cut loose, full of old people smell, and incapable of dancing, immediately begin to dance upon music emanating from the boombox. While the concept of someone dancing from music playing from a boombox isn't shocking, it does seem quite unlike the individuals in the rooms to start dancing, especially in their current environment. The third location of New York City is at least a bit more understandable. The role of the street performer is practically synonymous with the Big Apple, so it's not like seeing people dancing on the streets is unexpected. Several television shows, including Brooklyn Nine-Nine in one of its most recent seasons, take this trope and parody it for laughs, with the normally stoic Captain Holt getting into a dance battle with a bunch of teenagers. So seeing people in New York overwhelmed by the power of music to begin dancing doesn't seem that odd at first glance. If anything, the strangest part of this verse is Sandberg saying that so many types of people will never get along. Well, that or the potential time travel anachronism in the verse, uh, but we'll get back to that a little later on. At this point, we've got one group of people dancing that's totally plausible, as well as two groups that likely wouldn't be. They're all triggered by music from the boombox and nothing else. If I'm looking at these events from the outside, what would trouble me is not the dancing itself. I've been to enough weddings to know that if a song starts playing, someone is bound to get up and start dancing. Some people will join them, some people won't, but there will be dancing. For example, my wife loves to dance. As long as it's not country music or Cotton Eye Joe, which is just country music for people who don't want to admit they like line dancing, she's likely on the dance floor. On the other end of the spectrum, you have my grandmother, whom I had to beg for the better part of a year in order to get her to be the person I did the mother-son dance with at my wedding since my mom wasn't there. The point being that, for every person who's on the dance floor when the music is playing, at least one other person will not be. To say the music is entrancing enough that everyone just starts dancing, as Julian Casablancas does in this song's first chorus, it's statistically unlikely that in a single location with enough people, this will happen. Never mind three separate ones. During a period between the 14th and 17th centuries, Mainland Europe was swept by a phenomenon known formerly by several names, including Dancing Plague, St. Vitus Dance, and St. John's Dance, though more commonly known in modern times as Dancing Mania or Choreomania. The most notable instance of this event occurred in 1518 in the city of Strasbourg, France, then part of the Holy Roman Empire. The incident in question in July of 1518 involved somewhere between 50 and 400 people dancing over the period of several days. In college, we called this dance marathon, and it was the worst even if it was for a good cause. Perhaps not surprisingly about an event that occurred over 500 years ago, information about what happened that summer in Strasbourg is inconsistent. You may have already noticed that the number of people impacted by the event is reported to be anywhere between 50 and 400 people. That's a hell of a range! 50 people on an airplane means everyone's getting their own row of seats, if not an entire two-sided row, particularly if it's a long-haul flight. 400 people means you've overbooked at least two planes and someone is asking to speak with your manager like you're the one who let the algorithm overbook to this one. At the time, people theorized that dancing mania stemmed from a single dancer. 
About two-thirds of the accounts I was able to find identify a woman known as Lady Trophia as the instigator of the whole affair, while the remaining accounts aren't able to pinpoint who or what started. Beyond a boogie patient zero, the event was thought, at the time at least, to have been caused by overheated blood or demonic possession. You know, as every bad thing was assumed to have been caused by in the Holy Roman Empire. An entity that I will remind you that was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. It's worth noting that there is actually a real neurological condition that shares the aforementioned antiquated name of St. Vitus's Dance, that being Sidenham's Choria. This condition is typically related to an infection from a specific strain of Streptococcus and is almost exclusively found in children, particularly in developing countries. The condition typically involves rapid, uncoordinated, jerky motions from the feet, hands, and face, though it can also be concurrent with rheumatic fever. It's worth pointing out that these symptoms are distinct in presentation from other uncontrolled body motions such as seizures, though the severity of Sidenham's chorea can vary from having difficulty with handwriting to severe cases where the patient cannot walk, talk, nor feed themselves. I bring up this condition because of how it and many other theories related to the Choreomania event in Strasbourg in 1518 fail to fully explain what is believed to have happened there. Various theories of the cause have sprouted up over time, including those of mass infections of typhus or encephalitis, a large-scale long-term epileptic event, ergo poisoning from eating tainted grain, or even a series of mass hysteria events have all been assigned blame at some point in time, as well as the aforementioned demonic possession and overheated blood. Unfortunately, all of these theories are just that. They explain parts of what happened, but other events of choreomania and the circumstances surrounding them don't necessarily have the same threads tying them together. For example, ergo poisoning causes hallucinations and convulsions but doesn't cause many of the other reported symptoms at the Strasbourg event, including hyperventilation and chest pains. That's not even taken into account research done by individuals like author and medical sociologist Robert Bartholomew, whose research into choreomania events found that some participants, quote, paraded around naked, made obscene gestures, acted like animals, and had sexual intercourse, end quote. The Strasbourg event of 1518 is beginning to sound a lot more like Coachella than about demon possession. Going back to our moonwalks, we don't have a ton tying our three events of mass dancing together. We have the presence of the boombox itself, yes, as well as the dancing coming out of it. There's only one other thing that ties all three scenes together, that being the presence of boiled goose at all three locations. I have never eaten goose. In the United States, Canada geese are protected by the Migratory Birds Convention Act, which makes hunting migratory birds like the Canada goose incredibly difficult, if not illegal, depending on your location. In my home state of Ohio, land and homeowners have to go through a damage report process through the Ohio Department of Wildlife to be able to provide evidence that they've tried several non-lethal tactics to remove geese from their property or otherwise scare the geese away and have failed repeatedly. Only then can someone be considered for the option to round up and remove the geese, such as by destroying nests or hunting them. While this is technically legal after going through the previous process and receiving the proper permits, 
hunting is still a last resort. My point is that more people in Ohio and in the USA as a whole have likely eaten caviar than goose. So why is there boiled goose everywhere? If we were looking solely at the first two verses of the song, you could make a reasonable assumption that it's because the boardroom and the country club were in Europe, China, or the Middle East. Roast goose pops up on the tables of some Europeans on Christmas or St. Martin's Day, while it's a more traditional dish eaten throughout the year in China and the Middle East. But the third verse of the song specifically states that we're in New York City, so that rules out that possibility. Furthermore, if you were to search how to cook a goose on the internet, nearly every result you'll get is for how to roast a goose, and the song Boombox explicitly states boiled goose. Now, sure, this could just be a joke. It's an absurd line in an absurd song, and I spent an insane amount of time honestly probably more time than I spent doing math for the rich girl episode, trying to find recipes for boiled goose. I found soft boiled goose eggs, I found goose soup, I found foie gras, I found smoked goose wings. I found so many roast goose recipes that I'm genuinely confused if the British eat anything else. I honestly thought all hope was lost. But then I stumbled on something I didn't expect to find. In 1747, the book The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy by Hannah Glass was published. The book itself was notable in that it included the first known instance of a curry recipe being printed in English, as well as the first usage of the term Yorkshire pudding in a cookbook. That said, thanks to the power of the Internet Archive and Archive.org, I was able to find a free ebook copy of this book. The index allowed me to find a sauce specifically prepared for boiled goose, while one page earlier, a generic recipe for how to make boiled waterfowl or house lamb can be found, including times specifically for preparing boiled goose. Now, I'm not going to include the recipe for how to make boiled goose in this podcast, even if it would be a hand-glass thing to do, considering that over a third of the recipes in The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy are believed to be plagiarized from other cookbooks. That said, it does give us verifiable proof that someone, somewhere, at some time in history, thought that preparing boiled goose was important enough to put in a cookbook. And if some random person in the 1700s England thought it was a good idea, someone is bound to still be making it today, possibly even in the New York area. So while boiled goose is showing up all these places is statistically unlikely, both in part due to its uncommon usage in American cooking and the fact that boiled goose is nowhere near a preferred preparation method, I do think it's still possible. It was at this point in my research, dear listener, that I must admit to going down a rabbit hole that was a bit weirder than I expected. research found, I want to address the question I was aiming to answer, and why. No, boiled goose, nor any preparation of goose that I could find, can be considered to be an aphrodisiac. I originally began looking this up because of the final verse of the song wherein the nursing home turns into an orgy following the boombox being turned on. 
And I promise we'll get back to a bunch of old people fucking like rabbits in a minute. I know that's why some of you are here. Thank you for your patience. Well, let's talk about foods eaten around the world to spice up your sex life. Now, I'd heard a decent number of these. I know that there's a belief in several cultures that food that looks like genitalia, think asparagus, oysters, carrots, etc., have medicinal qualities to help you in the bedroom. And sure, fine, whatever. I've also heard before that you need to eat things like caviar, eggs, or bull testicles if you need help in bed. Weird, but again, whatever. And then, of course, there are items that are rare and illegal to purchase because you're stealing them from endangered animals. Rhino horn powder and tiger penis are at the top of this list, but I'm sure there are more examples out there on the internet if you really tried to find them. And again, I do not encourage you to do anything involving endangered animals. It's illegal. None of these foods, however, caught me off guard quite in the way that one particular edible remedy for low libido from the Philippines did. I once worked in the Philippines for nearly three months helping to stand up call center. It was a weirdly fun experience, even if the work itself wasn't great. I lived through two tropical systems hitting the Metro Manila area in my time there, we had to pay bribes at the airport to leave the country, and I ate spicy fried chicken and rice at 5am as my lunch most days. I bought knockoff Converse and got a Swedish deep tissue massage, both for under $10, in the same building I might add. And I spent a handful of nights at my hotel's bar watching the World Cup with fellow Bowling Green alum and current NHL business writer for the athletic Sean Pyro. Don't ask me how that ended up happening, but the fact that we were in the Philippines at the same time was kind of interesting. Now, some of my trainees at the call center were very insistent that I try a local delicacy known as Baloo. If you are squeamish or have a weak stomach, skip ahead about 30 seconds at this point. Balut is a boiled duck egg that has a duck embryo inside of it. And you eat everything. It has a vile smell. I did not try it myself, uh, but it, the smell is unforgettably pungent. Sure enough, what do I find in multiple articles about foods as aphrodisiacs but balut? And while I do think that there's a possibility that this could be the linchpin that ties everything together, after all, there is a sizable Filipino population in New York City, and there are restaurants in town that serve balut, this song explicitly says boiled goose. And if it were any other food, I'd bend myself over backwards trying to make this analogy work. But not balut. Never balut. At this point, we know that the boombox made people dance hysterically at three different locations, but we do need to take a bit of time to discuss the final appearance it has in the song in more detail. The last appearance of the boombox takes place at a nursing home that quickly becomes an orgy. But why? To this point in the song, all the boombox has done is to cause dance outbreaks. While we can debate exactly what the boombox is doing to cause that, Tom Foolery has not yet turned into Tom Fucker. Why the sudden change? The primary lyrical difference between the action Sandberg's takes in the final verse of the song versus all other stanzas is that he turned on the boombox's turbo bass feature. And as much as I initially thought that this was just more wordplay or exaggeration from a band known to do that for comedic effect, turbo bass is actually a thing. Albeit, more commonly known under another name, Bass Boost, 
Bass boost functionality on a piece of audio equipment adds additional volume or power to the bass end of the sound spectrum in an attempt to balance it out with the treble parts of the audio spectrum that are easier for the human ear to hear. While this functionality happens digitally in most cases now, analog devices such as boomboxes often had a button on them for bass boost. Pushing this button would provide power to a simple electrical circuit that would buffer audio signal output, then filter the buffered signal to boost the bass range of that signal. Depending on the volume that the music in question is at, the impact of bass boost can have different effects. At low volume, increasing bass volume provides a richer sound across the audio spectrum due to the increased balance it has with the treble side of your sound. At high volume, however, you get the features that bass boost is most commonly associated with, thumping and vibrations. A study conducted by audio video magazine AudioHogs found that sound frequencies in the 10 hertz to 25 hertz band, most commonly thought of as deep or low bass frequencies, often produce the physical sensation of pulsing or pressure on test subjects, specifically in the head and ears. When that range was increased, to 31.5 to 80 hertz, the mid-bass band, not only did subjects report experiencing feeling the sound, albeit this time in the chest, the sensations they felt were reported to be much more clear and noticeable than in the low end of bass range. It's worth pointing out that the mid-bass range is what most subwoofers and consequently bass boost helped amplify. Increasing to the high-end bass range of 100 to 200 hertz produced some interesting results. With the sensations being felt across the whole body, though there were not as many reports of the sensations appearing at all as there were in the two previous ranges. Now from this, we know that bass amplification in the range of a subwoofer is most likely to have an impact on the chest, though impacts to other parts of the body, especially the head and the ears, cannot be ruled out. The feeling of chest pressure is one of the most common symptoms of a heart attack, which leads me to a plausible theory. Considering the last appearance of the boombox takes place at a nursing home, I don't think it's unrealistic to think that elderly people suddenly feeling acoustic pressure on their chest would feel worried about the possibility of a pending heart attack. And you also have the common media trope of impending doom leading people wanting to do something memorable with the time they have left of which I feel like nursing home orgy might fall under. Is it that simple? Did a boombox that fueled dancing in previous locations cause a Bengay-fueled orgy simply through the addition of bass boost? It's certainly quite possible. And if you look at the bulk of the lyrics of the song, one might even say that it's quite likely that that's what happened. But I must stress, as I did at the top of the episode, that I think the final line in the song is telling. Quote, a boombox is not a toy. End quote. Earlier in the episode, I brought up how there appears to be a potential time travel anachronism in Boombox. While the song itself was released in 2009, much of the imagery invoked throughout the song indicates that the places Sandberg and Casablancas are using their boombox in are set in the late 1980s or early 1990s. Now, obviously, the boombox itself was a symbol of the late 80s. One has to look no further than the most well-known scene from the 1989 film Say Anything to realize the validity of this statement. But there are other signs in the song pointing to this setting. Fingerless gloves also saw a rise in popularity in the 1980s, 
thanks in part to performers like Michael Jackson. We also see, quote, a Spanish guy doing the Bartman, end quote, in the New York City verse, meaning that the setting of this song could be no earlier than late 1990, as the song was released in November that year. But songs are set in the past all the time. Why is this relevant? In the late 1980s and early 1990s, we saw the creation of a new form of music. With origins in techno, house, pop, and even classical music, the instrumental genre of trance music came out of Europe during this time. Though trance wouldn't hit its peak as a genre for another decade or so, its foundations and creation are heavily found in the same era that Boombox appears to be set in. But why does that matter? Boombox very clearly isn't a trance song. In addition to trance music typically being instrumental, it's typically a genre that's played at a higher tempo, with most songs falling in the 120 to 150 beats per minute range, a range that's perfect for dancing. Think back to the Strasbourg Dancing Plague of 1518 for a moment. Those afflicted with the Dancing Plague were sometimes considered to be part of a mass delusion. Trance music is intended to mimic the concept of hypnotism, attempting to have its listeners achieve a higher state of consciousness through music that slowly layers and builds over time before it peaks and drops within the song to cause a release. And how does an orgy end, but not with a release? Or crying, but probably a release. My theory? The song Boombox does take place in 2009, as that's when the song was written. The Boombox itself, however, is a psychological weapon capable of distorting the realities of those who hear it into believing that they've time-traveled into the early 1990s. Without the bass boost on, this results in mass hallucinations that lead to dancing similar to those present in Choreomania. However, the use of the boombox turbo bass feature adds auditory pressure to the chest and head of those suffering from the delusion, leading them to feel like their death is imminent. This leads to heightened sensations in the individual, ultimately leading them to derive intense sexual pleasure from the event, causing them to participate in origin. A boombox is not a toy. It's a mind control device. Thank you for listening to this episode of Incorrect Music Theories. If you like this episode and want to support the show, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and rate the show five stars on iTunes or Spotify. Show notes, transcripts, and other goodies can be found at the show blog at incorrectmusictheories.wordpress.com. Share the show with your friends, your enemies, and your cat. You can also support the show by pledging to me directly at patreon.com forward slash Jr. or by going to the show's anchor.fm page and pledging directly from there. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Tim Boffman Jr. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Love you. Bye.